This morning, we have the real privilege of hearing from Jeff Lark. Uh, Jeff and Natalie, uh, Corinne and I met them when they came here in 2003, when they became part of Fellowship Bible Church. I think that's where we got to know them and really enjoyed their time while they were working with crew ministries here at Bailey University, where they're heading that up. About eight years ago, uh, God called them to take a position with crew down in Austin, where they are developing the theological depth of the missionaries as part of crew ministry. And Jeff is, I just really value his insight. This is a man who sees scripture with depth. He loves the Lord. He's got a contagious love for him. And I think you're going to find that. He's also the author of Core Doctrine that the crew ministry uses. So, Jeff, we are so glad to have you with us. So, you want to come up here and bring him in? So glad to have you this morning. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right. It's good to be here. And before we jump into Luke 7, the passage that we're going to be looking at today, I wanted to say a big thank you to Fellowship. Uh, thanks for being such a great sending church for us. We've always felt so valued by Fellowship, and your prayers and financial support mean the world to us. Some of our dearest friends in the world are right here at Fellowship, and, and uh, while we were just here for five years... We have friendships and partners in the gospel that last a lifetime. And so, thank you. Thank you for being a part of that. Thanks for loving us well. I want to introduce to you my family. If you throw up the first pick there, that is us. Right before we left Waco, that's Cameron Park. And uh, right before we left Waco, about eight or so years ago. And uh, there's a more current picture that we could throw up. And you can see that Austin has changed us a lot over these last eight years. Some were, would say that we're getting older. I'd like to say that we're maturing. Natalie doesn't look any older than the day that we left, though, eight years ago. Uh, Emily is heading off to the University of Arkansas this month to start there. Jacob will be a junior in high school. And then Hudson will be in third grade. And so... Some say that a picture is worth a thousand words. I would say this one is worth five. I'm not the tallest anymore. And so, I've enjoyed being the tallest in my family for the last 23 years. And I'm grieved that I'm not towering over my family anymore. And I think maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration. I um, have maybe an inch on Natalie for these last 23 years, and that's when she's not wearing heels. And so, I've not been graced with much height, and I was the baby in the family, so I've always been the smallest. I was always aware of this, and kind of always thinking about it, but I became more acutely aware of it every year when we did class picture day. And so I knew my place, it was right there down on the front row. And uh, But I was secretly always hoping that there would be three or four smaller little girls that would take my place on the front row so that I could graduate to the second row. But I would, that would never happen. And so, I would get the picture back a few weeks later or a month later or whatever, and I would look, at sh look with shame at the, my, me seated there between two little girls on the front row. And then I would look with jealousy at some of my third grade classmates who were standing in the back row who looked like they should have driver's licenses. And so they who were who I wanted to be. And so I started out with a goal in life, 
that I would not be the smallest. But really, it was bigger than that. It was that, it wasn't that I just didn't want to be the smallest. I wanted to be Big Jeff. Big Jeff was larger than life. He was 6'4", 250. At least that's the impression that I wanted to create. But it wasn't that much about, as much about size, because I knew I couldn't control that. It was about, if you met Big Jeff, you were meeting somebody larger than life that you should be impressed with. And if I was going to be in the third percentile in my height, I was going to be in the 99th percentile of everything else, except maybe grades, but that's a different story. It was all about what you thought about me and the things that were most important to me, particularly athletics. Because what you thought of me meant everything to me. I figured that if I could be Big Jeff or create the impression that I was Big Jeff, I would have the love, admiration, and attention that I longed for. And so I learned how to perform. And the bigger the crowds and the more cheerleaders, the better. And so I know tennis for me, it was the big sports. It was football and baseball and basketball. And even though the cheerleaders didn't show up at the baseball games to cheer, they liked the baseball players, and so I was good with that. And so, year by year, I lived behind, hiding behind Big Jeff. And then, I became a Christian my junior year of high school, and everything changed, or so I thought. I dropped the football, and the basketball, and the baseball glove, but what I didn't realize was that I thought, while I thought everything had changed, the only thing that had changed was my audience. I moved from performing for the cheerleaders and the fans to performing for the Christian crowd. I replaced the football and basketball and baseball with the Bible and scripture memory and prayer. I found that I could be esteemed for how much Bible I knew or how many verses I knew or how great my prayers were. And you know what? It worked. But the problem was I had no idea what I was doing. Maybe I, but maybe I, I did maybe know what I was doing, but I didn't care. Because I was getting what I wanted. The admiration, esteem, significance, and value of other people. But the worst part of it was that Big Jeff was actually keeping me from truly knowing God. What about you? Performance is in the air we breathe. Whether it's subtly through messages that we receive growing up from our parents, or through academics, or athletics, we quickly realize that we are valued for what we do. It may not be religious performance, but what's your big Jeff? It may be how you do as a mom, or how you perform at work, or what kind of wife you are, or how you provide as a husband. Even some of us guys who are trying to relive our youth, and how many miles we can do, and how fast, or how many burpees, pull-ups, and, and push-ups we can do. Whatever it is, you've got your big Jeffs in your life. We all feel small, and we hate that feeling. We all feel desperate, but hide it. We all feel needy, but cover it with stuff and success. And in the process, we miss God. In all of us, there is this incessant craving for finding life and performance that causes us to shudder at the thought of being exposed for who we really are. And, as a result, 
we are missing that we are all who we are all or what we are ultimately looking for in reality is who we're ultimately looking for. This morning we're going to meet a couple people and peek into their stories. One craves for exactly what we crave for and hides behind his big jet to get it. The other gets what we actually deep down want. And so turn with me to Luke 7, 36 through 50. Luke 7, 36 through 50. As you turn there, we pray for us. Lord, as we open up your word, we pray for insight by your spirit that you'd help us to see clearly and that you would Spirit of the living God, shine a spotlight on Jesus in such a way that he is magnified and that our lives would be changed as a result. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now every good story has tension. The tension in this story is coming but it's not here in this first verse. We know the Pharisees. We know them to be the bad guys, right? And so we read a passage like this and think, dun, dun, dun. uh-oh, he's in a Pharisee's house. This can't, this can't be good. But even though they were the bad guys in the Gospels, they were the good guys. We would have felt, felt right at home with the Pharisees. You've got to know a little bit about their history. They came into existence sometime before Christ came on the scene. Back in the Old Testament, Israel had been taken captive by the Babylonians because of their idolatry and rebellion against God. The Pharisees then rose up sometime after that in order to keep anything from like that ever happening again to Israel. And so they sought to interpret the law of God and help apply it to the people's lives so Israel would not fall into idolatry and rebellion against God. Here's some other things that we know about them. The Pharisees maintained a simple lifestyle. They were affectionate and harmonious in their dealings with others. They believed in both faith, or divine sovereignty, and human will. They believed in immortality of both good and evil persons. They were considered the most accurate interpreters of the law. They were known as separatists from those who interpret the law differently than they from the common people of the land, separate from any type of impurity from certain political groups, and I'm sure they wouldn't, wouldn't be shopping at Target anymore. I'm sure they would have homeschooled or done private school at least. They uh, put their kids in upward basketball, and they didn't participate in trick-or-treating. In other words, these were good guys. They were my people. And I think most of us would have been right at home this particular evening in this Pharisee's house. Who knows, we could have been sitting there enjoying a good dinner, talking theology, maybe trying to solve the debate between divine, you know, divine sovereignty and free will. Our conversation may have turned political, and, uh, you know, of course we would have all been in agreement, shaking our heads at the lunacy of the candidate on the other side, or maybe both candidates, but our, our evening and our story is about to take a wild turn. Verse 37. And behold, 
a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. We don't know hardly anything about this woman. We don't know who let her in. For all we know, she could have put on her best clothes, covered herself from head to toe, and bringing in this alabaster uh, jar, she could have looked like she had some means. But what we do know is that she was eventually discovered for who she was, and she's described in two ways, a woman of the city and a sinner. We don't know anything more than that. She likely could have been a prostitute. She definitely had a reputation. She for sure held radically, radically different political and spiritual and theological views than Simon the Pharisee. Her kids probably went to public school if they're still in school. And at Halloween, it's like her house was the house that everybody avoided, especially the Pharisee kids. And when her kids showed up at your door on Halloween, they were dressed like Lucifer. You know, so this is who we're dealing with here in this story. And so, our conversation about the latest political candidate suddenly screeches to a halt. And all eyes turn toward this woman as she moves toward Jesus weeping. Verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. If this were a movie, all of a sudden the scene begins to almost stand still as if it's in slow motion. And what this sinner does is detailed by the narrator in five verbs. She wept, she wet, she wiped, she kissed, and she anointed. The custom of the day was that the table would be maybe just a, a foot, foot and a half off the floor, and the guests would lean in on the table on their elbows, and then their feet would fan out from behind them. As Jesus lay there with his feet exposed, what was maybe only a matter of a couple minutes felt like an hour because of its awkward. The weeping seemed uncontrollable. It was an ugly cry. Every kiss was mixed with tears as she caressed his feet in both hands. And then, still weeping, she took her most prized possession, broke the jar of expensive ointment, worshiping and anointing him as if he was king. We all would have been stunned with our jaws dropped if we had been witnessing that. And then, we hear Simon muttering something. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Okay. We know that the Pharisees had a beef with Jesus. So we kind of get it why, why he's so upset, but do we really get it? You may be saying to yourself, I don't know if I would have been upset at this. I want sinners to come to Jesus. Yes, I do too. But if I'm forced to admit my sin, when Jesus challenges my idol of value, idols of value, significance, affection, and attention, I get ticked off. This is exactly what's happening. With Simon. Everything he had built his life upon was crumbling with the intrusion of this woman. 
His separatist theology was being challenged. His standard of holiness was being uprooted. His view of the Messiah was offended. His view of the scriptures was being challenged. And it's not just that he had held these views, but he had built his life upon teaching these views and persuading a lot of people over to these views. He spent his life feeding his idols of significance, value, and affection by teaching these views. So this woman made him feel like his big Jeff was crumbling. What about you? You see, this isn't only a story about a woman interrupting our small group in order to worship Jesus. It's about our big Jeffs being exposed. Just like Simon, it's about our idols of prestige, value, significance, and importance being challenged because God isn't acting the way that we think he should be acting or doing what we think he should be doing. This happened to me during my time at Baylor. I got down here after finishing four years, a four-year seminary degree at Dallas Seminary. I thought, I'm glad Louis Giglio left some time ago because I don't think there's room enough in this town for the two of us. All I need to do is open my mouth and begin to teach the, the word and the crowds will come. Well, it didn't ha actually happen like that. Growth was painfully slow. And sometimes growth was backwards. And it was hard because Big Jeff was alive and well, and I still needed the cheerleaders and the crowd. And you know what happens when you hold tightly to these views and to these idols, I mean? Let's look back at this passage in verse 39 again, where Simon says this, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon goes straight at attacking the character of Jesus. Simon couldn't worship both his idols and Jesus for who he truly is. Therefore, Jesus, or Jesus wasn't even a prophet in Simon's estimation. Every time we say yes to our idols, we are forced to do one of two things to Jesus. We suppress the truth of God, or we challenge the character of God. This is how this looks. Inevitably, Jesus will put his finger on our big Jeffs. And we either go toe-to-toe -to -toe with our big Jeffs, or we go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus. We either kill big Jeff, or we suppress the truth of Jesus and challenge the character of Jesus. This is what I faced when I was at Baylor. I went toe-to-toe, -to -toe, not with Big Jeff, but with Jesus. And Jesus was wanting me to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Big Jeff. And so I wrestled with the goodness and faithfulness of God as I questioned his character. Questioned his commitment to reaching people with the gospel. Questioned his faithfulness to use me. And this is exactly what Simon did. His idols clouded his vision of who Jesus is. But not only that, his idols clouded his vision of who he is. Let's look and see what happens next as the tension in this story builds. Verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, it's funny that he answered his thoughts, but Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. 
A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus simply tells Simon a story about two debtors. One owed about a year and a half worth of salary, and the other owed about a month and a half worth of salary. It's a simple story with the implications being so easy to see that Simon easily got it. The one who has the greater debt forgiven is the one who will respond with appreciation to the one who forgave the debt. We don't know, though, yet if, how, if Simon saw how it would apply to his life. But Jesus goes right there as the tension in the story gets to a boiling point. Verse 44, and turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus is saying, Simon, from the moment I came in, you never once showed me the common hospitality that you would have showed somebody in that day. Hosp uh, there was no appropriate greeting with a kiss of friendship on the cheek. You didn't wash my dirty and dusty feet as people did back then. But this woman went above and beyond. Why? Because she knew something about herself that Simon just couldn't see about himself. That she was a great debtor. And she knew something about Jesus that Simon couldn't see. That Jesus is a great Savior who greatly forgives. And that's exactly where the narrative goes. You could have heard a pin drop when Jesus says in verse 47, Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, before we develop some bad theology, we need to read, rightly read verse 47. How do we take the four in this verse where it says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. Jesus is not saying, since she loved much, she is forgiven. forgiven. That's like saying, because I love Jesus, he forgives me. That's the exact opposite of the good news of the gospel. No, instead he is saying, her many Sins are forgiven. And you know how you can tell? Because she loved much. And then in a moment of tenderness between a Savior King and a broken sinner, Jesus makes her forgiveness public in front of a stunned room when he says, Your sins are forgiven. Let me summarize what's happening with Simon. Jesus is saying to Simon, Simon, there is one thing you need that this woman has. You need to be needy. Your big Jeff has clouded your vision of yourself and kept you from seeing how needy you really are. Jesus is saying, Simon, 
You are far more needy than you could ever imagine. That's not your problem. The main problem is you've done such a good job of creating a larger-than-life image that you have no idea how needy you are. But this woman got it. And so the story concludes, verse 49, And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And then verse 15, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The crowd is left rightly questioning. The woman leaves likely quite different than the way she came in. She comes in in turmoil. She leaves in peace. She comes in in shame. She leaves with a new identity. She comes in unloved. She leaves loved. She comes in discarded. She leaves valued. She gets everything that Solomon longed for. Peace, identity, love, value. All because she got the one thing that Simon didn't think he needed. Forgiveness. As she leaves the house, you can almost hear her saying, softly at first, and then maybe building with confidence, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Praise the one who paid my debt, who raised this life up from the dead. Praise the one who paid this debt and raised this life up from the dead. And as her praise fades into the distance, we're left in Simon's house and we're trying to make sense of what we just saw. Here's what we can make of it. This story isn't ultimately about Simon or the woman. We would find ourselves staring at Jesus, saying, He can! He can forgive the worst of sinners. He's the only one who can pay the debt. More than making a statement about the woman, Jesus is making a bold statement about who he is. And there's a couple things to note about this. How rich is this Jesus who can forgive the debt? How rich is this Jesus? While our debt is great, it's ultimately not it's ultimately about how rich the one is who could cancel the debt. Why do we have to be rich? It was on the cross that our debt was paid in full. As Jesus pronounced forgiveness upon the woman, he wasn't pronouncing a cheap forgiveness. No, because our debt wasn't cheap, neither was it cheap to pay off. Jesus knew as he made that pronouncement that it would cost him his very life and that it would cost him his immeasurable riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He exchanged his riches so that we could be made rich. But our Savior's poverty was only temporary. Listen to what Ephesians says about the riches toward us. Ephesians 1.7 In him 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, past tense, in all wisdom and insight. But not only were his riches lavished upon us in the past, but Ephesians 2, 6 and 7 says, He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, age upon age upon age, for all of eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, not only can Jesus forgive us because he is rich enough, but he is pure enough to forgive us our impurity. How pure is this Jesus who can forgive our sin? The Levitical law in the Old Testament prohibited clean people from coming in contact with the unclean, whether that was food or the dead or people with diseases. The thought was that the clean would become contaminated by the unclean. But that isn't the case when you're God in the flesh. Because of his immeasurable purity, when Jesus touched the unclean, whether it was a diseased person or a dead person or this woman, his immeasurable purity spread to them, not vice versa. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says, Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, you are ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but you are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. But just like, get this, just like Jesus gave up his riches for us, he also gave up his purity for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He exchanged his purity for our sins so that we could have his purity. And just as giving up his riches was temporary, so was giving up his purity only temporary. He died by taking on, on our sins, but then he raised from the dead in righteousness. And he reigns in heaven in purity forever. Hebrews 7, 26 and 28 says, For it was fitting... For indeed fitting that he that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So, not only is he rich enough and pure enough that he can forgive sinners, but as we stand in that room, and try to make sense of what we just saw and are staring at Jesus. We would say, he does. Now he, he can, but he does forgive sinners who come to him in their brokenness. The good news is that he does forgive the broken because there's a little word in the Bible. The word, whoever. John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. John 4, 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never thir be thirsty again. 
John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 12.46, I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I think we know this, but let's take a minute to think for about who's included in those whoever's. Those whoever's include those who struggled with porn last night. And those who yelled at their kids on the way to church this morning. Those who are struggling in a secret affair. Those who are part of the LBGTQ community and those who sympathize with them. Those who aborted a baby this week. Those who last night visited a prostitute like this woman was. And those terrorists who seek to kill the innocent, just ask the Apostle Paul. Let that sink in. His whoever's include you and me. He does forgive sinners who come to him in their brokenness. And there's one more thing as we're standing in that room that we would conclude. Is that the extravagance of our worship and love is directly tied to the extent of our forgiveness. The extravagance of our worship and love is directly tied to the extent of our forgiveness. There's another story in John 12 that's similar to this one found in Luke 7. Just six days before Jesus would die, he's at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It says in verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of, of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why has this ointment not been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So just one pound of this ointment was worth 300 denarii. I'm not a math major, but you add just another, a little bit more than a half a pound more of ointment, and you get ointment worth about 500 denarii. Or about a year and a half worth of wage. Sound familiar to our story? Hang in with me here. We have no idea how much ointment the sinful woman used in Luke 7 to worship Jesus. But it wouldn't surprise me if it was a little more than a pound and a half. Or 500 denarii worth. Why? Because that's how much she had been forgiven. Her worship was in direct proportion to her forgiveness. Forgiven little, love little. Forgiven 500 denarii worth love. Five with 500 denarii. The extravagance of our worship is, and love is directly tied to the extent of our forgiveness. Here's the point. I'm about to make a statement that Simon just couldn't get. We are far worse than we could have ever imagined. Now, if I make that statement, and there's not a cross close by, it will lead us in one of two directions. One, you'll say, no, I'm not. I'm not that bad. And you live in denial and performance. Or it can lead you to despair. And you say, oh my gosh, you're so right. I'm the worst of the worst. I'm so discouraged about who I am. And you don't need to tell me what I already know about myself. There is no hope for me. Both of these, either performance or despair, are self-focused attempts to deal with how utterly wicked we really are. But if you look away from yourself 
and there's a cross close by you can say i'm far worse and more in debt than i could have ever imagined i'm far more loved and forgiven than i could have ever dared dream the deeper our sin goes the deeper his grace goes you can never out sin the grace of god and the more we understand that grace the greater our response and of worship and love if you find yourself flatlined spiritually maybe your heart's cold maybe you lost your the vibrancy that you once had maybe you find yourself just kind of going through the religious motions and if you feel like you just aren't able to love and worship jesus with your all maybe you don't realize really realize that all of you has been forgiven know this the extravagance of your worship and love is directly tied to the extent to which we understand our forgiveness. So as we walk out of Simon's house, how do we apply this to our lives? Remember, this story is about two worshipers. One worshipped and loved his idols. The other worshipped and loved their Jesus. So because of this, or because this is about worship, this now is our aim. This statement is what we want our lives to look, at, look like. Because Jesus greatly forgives those who come to him in great need, we can, we can worship with a heart that explodes with gratitude, love, tears of joy, and affection. But how do we get there? Big Jeff doesn't die that easy. But how do we kill him? First, three things. First, we need to look at our righteous Savior. We see in this woman deep brokenness, but we don't become like this woman by looking inward to try to uncover every little last piece of part of sin in our lives. We look at Christ. In Luke 5, there's a story of Jesus calling the first disciples and Peter. And they've been fishing all night without any luck at all, hadn't caught anything. Jesus shows up on the scene, calls out from the shore and says, hey guys, throw the net on the other side of the boat like that would make any difference. Well, reluctantly they did. And miraculously, they bring in this huge catch of fish. And then Peter, seeing the one that provides a huge catch of fish, says to Jesus, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. In other words, I don't deserve to be in your presence. Gazing inward to try to uncover every last bit of sin in our lives doesn't produce in us true brokenness. True brokenness comes only as we gaze at a righteous Savior. In other words, a person who doesn't see their sin, or doesn't see their true brokenness, hasn't truly seen Jesus. Pray that the fog that keeps you from seeing Jesus will lift just enough for you to get glimpses of this righteous Savior. Secondly, and tied to the first one, is that we need to be needy. As the fog lifts to be able to see Jesus more clearly, pray that he would help you to see your utter neediness, that you're far worse than you could have ever imagined. Be needy. And then third, never move beyond the thrill of continually being greatly forgiven. Here's the temptation that we can face. Forgiveness can become a thing of the past and therefore can become stale. It's like my house on Christmas morning. Got an eight-year-old that wants to be up in all of his enthusiasm up at 4.30 a.m. to begin to see all the loot underneath the Christmas tree. And then you have an 18-year-old who's a little less enthusiastic and wants to sleep in to at least 10. 
Oftentimes, we look at forgiveness with the same enthusiasm as a king at Christmas. It's still good, but it just doesn't get me up at 4.30 in the morning anymore. It's become stale. Let the new mercies of God wash over you every day and let them thrill you. Finally, it's as we look at our righteous Savior, recognize our need, and allow forgiveness to be fresh, that we can finally experience what we truly long for, to worship with a heart that explodes with gratitude, love, tears of joy, and affection, to experience what this woman had. In closing, it's been nearly 40 years since I visited the Grand Canyon, but I still remember being terrified, yet captivated by it. I couldn't help but feel like this giant hole in the ground could swallow me at any moment, yet I couldn't get close enough. Imagine, though, you're standing there on the edge of the Grand Canyon, taking in all of its magnificence, and you happen to look next to you, and somebody's standing there, looking in the same direction as you, but they pulled out a little pocket mirror, and they're fixated with fixing their hair. You'd probably think you're out of your mind. Do you not see what's on the other side of that mirror? Get over yourself just for a minute. Why would you think that? Because our hearts were made for worship. We were made small for a reason. There's something very healthy about feeling small. We were made to have our hearts explode with what's bigger than us. What is terrifying and captivating. To experience what this sinful woman experienced. Jesus invites us to come to him in our smallness in our desperate need, in our brokenness. And as we do, we put down our mirrors and our vain attempts to be Big Jeff and truly worship who our hearts were made to be captivated by. Because Jesus greatly forgive those, forgives those who come to him in great need, we can do what our hearts long for, to worship him in our brokenness. Worship him today in your brokenness. Let me pray. Lord, we come to you, and we thank you for this story. We thank you for this woman. But we most importantly thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you are rich enough to forgive us, that you're pure enough to forgive us. Thank you that we can stand in brokenness and approach you in brokenness because we are far more loved than we could have ever dared dream. So God, thank you for your grace toward us. 